Welcome back to the Brexit Brits Abroad podcast. I'm Dr. Michaela Benson, a reader in sociology at Goldsmiths University of London and the research lead for a UK and a changing Europe funded project that's all about what Brexit means for British citizens living in the EU 27. Over the coming weeks and months, you'll be hearing me in conversation with the rest of the team, with Karen O'Reilly, Catherine Collins and Chantal Lewis. Today, I'm joined with Michaela Benson, Karen O'Reilly and Catherine Collins. We are talking about the past 18 months on the project, things we've learned, things we've found difficult, things we've found sociologically interesting. We want to take this opportunity today on this podcast to talk to Michaela in particular the project lead, we want to ask her questions basically about the project and what she has found the most interesting, difficult, that sort of thing. We want to know what's in her head because she's got so much in her head, not written down. You've got so much, so much. (laughs) That makes me sound like a terrible project lead, doesn't it? No, so much ethnography, so many interviews, so many analysis. Like we want to pick your brain, Nicola. Is that okay? Pick away. (laughs) We want to pick your brain. So I'm going to dive in first because I've got a list of questions that I wanted to ask Mikla anyway and never got round to asking her. And then you guys can chip in when you're ready. So Mikla, big one. What's the situation now, status quo, about citizens' rights? Okay, so obviously there's a different answer to that question to what there might have been two or three weeks ago and there might be a different answer to that question again even when there's a vote in the House of Commons. So we should just, I think, state for the record that today is the 17th of December 2018. I mean, that's a whole other story about the massive challenges. Now, simply put, at the moment, the draft withdrawal agreement, which was voted on the European Parliament in November, allows for the continuation of some of the rights of British populations who live in the EU, provided that they are lawfully resident. One of the main issues outstanding is that continuing freedom of movement within the EU has not yet been guaranteed or resolved. In fact, it's notably absent from the withdrawal agreement. But nevertheless, the basic rights to be living and working in another EU member state remain upheld within the withdrawal agreement. However, as we know and has become clear through the project, the terms on which British people live in the EU27, I think that one of the things that's become clear to me over the last few months is that there really still is this big question mark over what it means to be lawfully resident. And I don't think that that is something that many British citizens living in the EU were aware of before Brexit happened and before all of these conversations about citizens' rights started to take place. And unfortunately, what that means is there are likely to be British citizens who currently live in the EU who will fall between the gaps of the withdrawal agreement. Now, that is assuming, of course, that we go ahead with this deal. And obviously, that has also raised a huge question mark in the heads of many British people living in the EU. What we've seen over the last 18 months is unprecedented in terms of the level of turbulence in their lives. I had hoped that by now there would be some certainty. Mm. And I think as a team, we'd hope that there would be some certainty by now. But 
we're just not there yet. Well, I have to say, when did this project start? The 1st of June, 2017. 2017. And one of the first things that was supposed to be resolved, one of three things, the withdrawal bill, the Irish border and citizens' rights. They were the three things that the European Union said, before we go any further... We need to resolve these things. Well, they haven't things. gone any further. Ross. <laughs> Mikula and I actually turned to each other at that stage and said, oh, my goodness, this is going to be one of the first things resolved. We won't have a project. How far Or we'll be moving over and to you know, analysis. And do you know what else is actually interesting? If we, if we look at the 1st of June, had the general election happened at that point then? I don't think it had. It had. You so, are asking difficult questions. So that, so that then played into <laughs> yep. what you were going to be able to find out and what you were going to talk to people about as well. There was a whole other massive thing. I feel like we forget that there was a general election really not that long ago. And obviously, with Theresa May losing her majority, that meant that the situation for British and Europe became even more uncertain. Like, who'd have thought that that would be? Yeah. So, So would you agree that... Where citizens' rights are concerned, it is quite clear that if you are legally resident and can show that at the moment with the current withdrawal agreement, you can show by December 2020 that you are legally resident in another country, then you your rights to stay there, not necessarily to move anywhere else, are assured. If there's However, a deal. If there's however, a deal. However, it depends on the current withdrawal agreement, if there is a deal, and also whether you can show that you are legally resident or not. And that opens another can of worms. So can I then go on to what you know at the moment and what you don't, obviously, because I know this is very difficult, about registering for people? So because you do know an awful lot yeah. about what, not just what the legalities are, but what's actually available for people. I think it's important to bear in mind we're talking about 27 different countries. Yeah. Yeah. So one of one of the biggest issues in my work, because I've been working primarily with British populations who live in France, has been in France, like in the UK, there has been no system of registration of EU citizens. And that, you might want to say that again, because that might come so, as a shock to people. Yeah. In most other countries across the EU, there are systems of compulsory and in some places voluntary registration for EU citizens. In France and the UK, that has not been the case. There's not even a voluntary one that I am aware of, but I'm speaking specifically about France. And in addition to that, although in all European countries, there is provision for residence permits for EU citizens, Mm -hmm. in France, Mm -hmm. that has also not been compulsory. And beyond that, Mm -hmm at the level of individual local municipalities. Mm -hmm. For the last 15 years, British citizens have been variously advised Mm -hmm. by the authorities about not getting Mm -hmm. these residence permits, of being told that they didn't need them, which actually has left British populations in France in a slightly unusual position at a point in time when they are being asked to demonstrate lawful residence. I mean, I think that's the kind of basic level of talking about British citizens in France and what the particular issues are there. However, at the moment, we have the situation where it looks as though France might be leading the way across Mm. Europe Mm. in terms of putting in place some kind of contingency for how they would deal with British citizens if there is no deal. They have started to process the cut decision applications. That is definitely something that's going on. This is the residence permit. They've been encouraging British citizens to register for cut decision. What I would point out is that the residence permit, the cut decision, 
it comes with a series of requirements. There's a set of criteria that you have to fulfil in order to be eligible so for that. So know what those are before you think about applying. Always, always. <laughs> Check in. So find out what you can locally before taking any steps. Exactly. I'll just chip in about Spain. Yep. So in Spain, you should register with your town hall. That's one thing. And also register with the police. When and you say should, what do you mean? Well, nobody's actually enforcing it. And also, in the time I've been going to Spain, so I first went to Spain even before freedom of movement. So we had to register with the police and get a residence permit. Then they went through a period of time when they were actually advising people not to bother with a residence permit. So there are plenty of people there who went to apply for residence permits and the police pretty much, depended where you live, depended in what autonomous region you were in, and it's all informal, but they're pretty much said, you know, we've got a lot of migrants here. We're not worried about you. <laughs> Go away. <laughs> and this was what was happening in practice. More recently, they have tried to enforce in various ways by giving people advice and telling them you are legally supposed to have a residence permit. But then again, there's not really any... I mean, if you don't do it, there's no harm come. There are things like people have uh, non-resident bank accounts. And if you become a resident, you can no longer keep your non-resident bank account. So there are implications for people doing it and not doing it. Short answer is you are supposed to register both with the town hall and with the police. Once you've had a two year, you get two year residence and when you're five years, you become permanent resident. You don't have to renew it. I have met so many people, including in the authorities, who are authoritative people, let's say, who are supposed to be advising people, who are completely confused about this. So that's Spain. It's enabled in different ways in different places. So that's, and that's what, the, what the situation <laughs> is in other countries is... As you can see, even from that, they're two quite different systems. And there, registration there and residence are not the same Absolutely. thing. Absolutely. So people might think that they're registered because yeah. they've got their name down on the town hall, but it doesn't mean that they've got a residence permit. And so if they don't have it, they should be keeping records, any possible records that they can have that show that they've been living there. If they reach a point where they want to claim lawful residence going back any period of time, start now collecting any information. And what information. I would say is if any, anyone listening, I mean, there are campaign groups who have collected information on how to do this yeah. in various places. And I would just like to shout out to the British in Europe. Yeah. Check the British in Europe website. They have all of the information yeah. about different countries, probably more so than we do. Yeah. So not giving you a breath at all, what about the EHIC card? What's the situation with that? Do you know, I actually think that I don't know because I thought that this had been dealt with a long time ago and I'm not entirely sure. And the only thing I would say about the EHIC card is the EHIC card is not for people who are living I think that's in important other countries. That's a out. really, really mm. important thing. Their healthcare is dealt with in different ways. So whether that's for pensioners through the S1 entitlement or whether it's because people are economically active in the places that they live and paying into the social security systems in those places and therefore covered through their economic contribution through work, I think that's a different issue. The EHIC is basically for people who are temporarily visiting mm. and who need emergency health care, whether that's because you've got an ear infection or whether it's something more serious. So the EHIC is not something 
which is intended to be used in lieu of access to a national healthcare system except for temporary visits. I would need to go and double check again. I'd be very reluctant to say anything about the EHIC mm. until I've properly checked with the the Healthy Brexit people. Sorry, that's another project funded by the UK and Changing Europe who've been looking specifically mm. at health law and reciprocal arrangements, but also have considered their EHIC as well as part of that. I think that the important thing about this is, of course, the EHIC is a pan-European card. Mm. It's something that we originally had access to because mm. Britain was a member of the European Union. So I think that that's something that we we shouldn't assume. Yeah, we can't take for granted. We can't take Although for granted. Although it has, we have at one point been told that this will continue. Yeah. But unless you've read all six hundred pages of the withdrawal agreement, I didn't see it in the in the short summary that I read. I read the European Commission's short summary, and I didn't see it mentioned in there. So that's it's, it's probably worth noting on this as well. When I was looking at the uh, select committees for leaving the EU, and in particular the reciprocal healthcare one the majority of MPs didn't understand what the e-hit cards were. Yeah, they think it was the thing that meant that yeah. British people who live in European countries can access healthcare, which yeah. is just not the truth. I'm, I remember sitting in a in a parliamentary debate yeah. and getting very irate. Actually, I think you were there, Katie, as well. Very irate by a member of parliament who was like, you know, we will support the British populations in Europe through arguing for them to be able to keep their EHIC card. And you're thinking, well, actually, that's what I need when I go on holiday. <laughs> so, yeah. so the misunderstandings there. And also it's really interesting you mentioned the access to emergency healthcare while staying there temporarily. It was really interesting watching the ministers listen to various charities and healthcare professionals, so whether it's like Kidneys UK and there was another one, I can't remember now, but basically how they were saying people underestimate how much these e-hit cards are used for people that need emergency healthcare, particularly those that need like dialysis and all that sort of thing. And going through the detail of something so specific like that was so sort of quite sad to listen to because it's like this is going to really affect some people. But it was sad but at the same time slightly infuriating because Parliament just didn't really understand this. So how would anyone else understand so it's worth pointing out that we have no idea how many, but the very many people who've maybe bought a second home somewhere in Europe and who spend several months a year there and using their e-hit card only. At one point, it was if you're six months and one day living in the other country, you're supposed to be registered there as living there. I think that that's a good point. You know, EHIC is for people who are there temporarily. But temporary can be quite long. But temporary can be quite long. And I think it's important to remember that um, I know you're going to go on to the numbers in a minute, aren't you, Karen? (laughs) But the numbers don't count these people who are temporarily there. So we don't really have any indication of how many people are relying on these various structures that have been put in place to support people's movement across borders temporarily or more permanently. And it includes, for example, I mean, I was talking with with a colleague in Stockholm University the other day who's done research with British populations who are caravanners. You met earlier. I did. (laughs) Who live in recreational vehicles and travel around Europe, staying on campsites for short periods of time or, or slightly longer periods of time. And I imagine that there are similar populations within the boating community. Mm. And I think that those are the people who won't be counted by the statistics. Mm. 
They are also highly likely to be people who are not economically very well off, Mm. uh, who are making these decisions Mm. to help with their life circumstances. And so they're just not in the picture, uh, which I think is quite alarming. If we um, think about who's going to be affected by Brexit, these people are already being affected, but are going to be affected. They're human beings (laughs) who have exercised how they understand freedom of movement, and they are going to be affected by Brexit. If they have fallen foul of some regulation or other, hopefully we've shown how difficult those regulations are to understand and how they're not always being implemented anyway. So to their minds, they're doing what is okay for them to do. And all of a sudden, they're, oh my God, how should I be living? Yeah, they've learned to live their lives under one regime that's worked for them so far. And I think that they really are likely to find themselves in a situation where I hope that by by pointing out that these communities are there, we're not drawing undue attention to them. But people living in live in Europe, British people, in a variety of different circumstances and a variety of different conditions. And some of those now, as the withdrawal goes ahead, uh, it might mean that some people find themselves under scrutiny for their rights to be in the places that they have come to live in ways that they hadn't been previously. And I think that's quite an important thing to point out. Sorry, I realise I just keep going rampantly off topic. Not at all, Michaela. It's all very interesting. Katie, do you have a question for Michaela? I got two. So my first one is, if you didn't have any time constraints, so we know that everyone or researchers have them what would you actually want to come out of this project what would you like to do would it be a field defining work on integration that changes the face of research or a hollywood screenplay on brits abroad (laughs) well now you what would you oh dear you've just opened up my mind katie to all of the wild possibilities that there could be it's a good question because i'm in my head this has become part of a once again, of a longer standing project. And one of the things that I would like to do, and I think that, yes, time constraints aside, you know, all of these things, this is something that that might be achievable, is I would like to remind people somehow that Britain is an emigration nation as much as it is an immigration nation. And I think that there's something really fascinating about the way in which that history and that contemporary practice of emigration is forgotten and neglected. I don't think it helps our migration debate in this country at all. And of course, I would say that. I come from a family where migration is normal. For people who don't know anything about me, uh, my mother was born in another country. Uh, She was raised in another country. Her first language is not English, it's Cantonese. She happens to have been born to another migrant, My grandfather, who moved from Wiltshire to Hong Kong at the age of, well, sometime in his early 20s, and met my grandmother, who is, for want of a better way of putting it, Hong Kong Chinese. And my mother migrated to the UK when she was 18. The first 11 years of my life, I moved every 18 months, including internationally, as well as within the UK. So for me, migration is very normal. And I think that my family history and obviously I've just spoken about my mother's side of the family, not my father's side of the family, 
shows me how we could think about migration as something that's part of our history as people who live in this country in Britain. So longer term, I will remain committed, I think, to writing about emigration and to re rehabilitating it into our migration discourse. You can tell I've been thinking about that, can't you? I like the sound of that. Oh, you didn't feed me that question either. That was good. <laughs> it's pretty impressive. Yeah, right? um, kind of psychic yeah. link. But I think something that's more publicly oriented on that is really vital at this point in time because I think that as the Brexit vote demonstrates, that discussion about migration has become so toxic. And part of it is in the observation that the migrant is somehow other, it's somehow deviant. Mm. Well, I don't yeah. know what that says about me. That I don't know what it says about you. That such a hold, you know? that notion that migration is abnormal, a problem to be explained. This has driven all my career this desire to see migration as something normal, not as a problem, even to the extent that I don't like to be called a migration scholar. I call myself a sociologist who uses migration to look at things that are normal for all of us. Home, belonging, friendships, relationships, stuff like that. That's what I'm interested in, not migration. Because if you say, I want to study migration, you're assuming migration is something abnormal. And I think, I mean, there, it's obviously a longer term problem to talk through, but I think it's really, really important that we remember that history, that we remember that, you know, there are possibilities in thinking about migration. It wasn't always the way. In the 1930s, when social scientists studied migration, they studied people leaving the UK, people coming to the UK, and also people moving within the country. Because yes. let's not forget Absolutely. that actually a lot of people have these much more local histories of migration yeah. Yeah. Uh, moving for work. I have moved every three years of my life on average moved house. Okay, I'm not talking about different countries. Well, sometimes that's been different countries in too. In terms yeah. of that being mobility, I have moved every... I worked it out the other day. I was quite shocked. <laughs> that's, so, yeah, so there you go. That's that's uh, if there were, And that's how I see this project as being part of something bigger than just the case of British people who live in other European countries. Um, second question. Second question. I mean, it kind of moves on neatly from the first one, which is, and bearing in mind that we don't know whether there's going to be a Brexit or not, or anything in between currently, what do you think the key questions are going to be for researchers in the next five to ten years in this area? This is an interview panel. <laughs> God, we're going to be talking about it forever, aren't there we? we are. <laughs> I think we are going to be talking about it forever. And I, shall I tell you what I'd hope? Hmm. I would hope that those are questions that are not just about Brexit having changed everything, hmm. that are questions that really... Um, consider the longer history through which something like Brexit could be produced mm. and that we don't just restart the clock with Brexit, that we remember that there has been a huge amount of incredibly good critical social science scholarship on almost every single issue that Brexit intervenes in. And I think it is incumbent upon us to actually remember that and to say, OK, well, you know, what does it change and what stays the same? And I think that's really important that we do that. I think that there are, you know, just as there has always 
been, there is a role for critical social science scholarship in understanding the society that we live in, in understanding what happens around us, in thinking about what the future is. And we shouldn't forget that although we are rather preoccupied with Brexit as a team, because of course that's the thing that we've been given money to do research on, that actually there are a whole host of other things going on at the moment as well, which may or may not be drawn out through what might become a, you know, as Chantal said, you know, we're going to be studying Brexit forever. But I think we also have to remember that actually the lens on Brexit might obscure other things that are going on that seem to continue unabated through Brexit. And I'm thinking particularly of, of course, it's Christmas time. So we're seeing more and more stuff about homelessness, which is always the way at Christmas. But you know, I think we have got to remember that actually we need to keep our, our frame open as well. So I think that's two things. One is, you know, OK, what changes, what stays the same? And the other is Brexit isn't everything. Thank you very much for the questions. <laughs> good point got, to finish on. Yeah, that is, a good, yeah. that is a good point to finish on. Thank you very much, Michaela. You've been listening to the Brexit Brits Abroad podcast hosted by me, Dr Michaela Benson, and produced by Emma Halton at Art of Podcast. The series is part of a UK and a Changing Europe funded research project, Brexit Brits Abroad, that's all about what Brexit means for UK citizens living in the EU 27. We're really keen to hear from you about the issues and concerns we address in the programme, so please do get in touch with any thoughts, queries and questions. You can find our contact details on our webpage, Brexit Brits Abroad, or get in touch via social media. We're on Twitter at BrexPatsEU and we have a Facebook page, Brexit Brits Abroad. Finally, in case you're not already subscribed to the podcast, you can do so on both iTunes and Google Podcasts. Thank you for listening and I'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode.